excited to get a chance to speak again, to work through, continue our work through this beautiful book in the New Testament called Philippians. If you missed last week, we kind of got to know this book a little bit better. We worked through chapter one together. We, we learned that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote this book, and it's a tiny little book that sits in our New Testament. And uh, it's a book about joy, but the irony in all of this is Paul is sitting in prison awaiting execution in Rome, but yet he's writing a book about joy. And he talked in chapter one about how the difference between happiness and joy, and Paul had found and discovered something even better than happiness. It was this thing called joy. And when we root that joy in Christ, there is nothing, no circumstance, nothing that can rob us of that joy. And as we're going to jump into chapter two, we're going to see that he expounds on that. And he's going to talk about this, this joy that we have because of Jesus, because we're in a win-win situation. It should show up in our lives. It should be expressed in our lives. And not only in a way that is just internal, but it goes out and it impacts the people around us. So we're going to talk about that. What does that look like? How, how is that joy expressed? And actually, as I, was, as I was thinking about today and our message today of expressing joy and what joy is, I started thinking through, man, things that bring me joy in my life. And so I have a couple photos I want to share with you to, uh, to, to, to tell you about the things that bring me joy. The first one here is my family. And I realize some of you I know, if you're at Webster or even here, many of you I don't know, but this is my family. It's my wife, Emily. We have been married 15 years this year, which is, which is really cool, which is awesome. Thank you. So thankful for her. She brings so much joy to my life. So thankful to have her along in this journey of life, of ministry, of raising our kiddos. And as you can see there, we have three kids God has blessed us with. Um, Olivia, she is 11, which is hard to believe. She's not little anymore. In fact, she just went to her first NYM event this past week. She's heading into sixth grade. And so now my kid's going into youth ministry, which is, which is crazy. But by the way, she had an awesome time. She had so much fun. I asked her, hey, what was, your, what was the best part of being at NYM? And she's like, honestly, it was hearing the stories of life change. They, they baptized four kids on Wednesday, which is really cool. And she loved getting to hear their stories and testimonies of faith. Um, so that's Olivia. Then we got Landon, and then he's eight years old, and then we have Claire, who is six, and so thankful for the family God has blessed me with. They bring a ton of joy to my life. There's one important part of our family, though, I don't want to leave out, and that's Molly. That's our dog, Molly. She brings so much joy to our lives and to our family, and there's one thing and one thing only she cares about, and that's retrieving and playing fetch. Man, she always has a ball in her mouth. Um, whether it's a soft baseball like that or a tennis ball. In fact, if you were to come over to our house, she would be dropping that ball right by your feet like every few seconds to see like, will you play with me now? Will you play with me now? Will someone play fetch with me? Like, that's all she cares about, but uh, she brings a ton of joy. In fact, she even has her own Instagram account <clears throat> that she created, Molly Grace the Fox Red Lab. So you can, you can hit her up and check her out on, on social media. She actually has more followers than I do on Instagram, which is crazy. And uh, yeah, my wife is mildly obsessed with taking photos and reels and videos and all that good stuff on Instagram. But, uh, but anyways, those are some things that bring me joy. And as we, as we get ready to dive into chapter two here, we're going to continue this discovery of what it means to have a joy-filled life. And Paul's going to help us see and understand that as well, that when we know Christ, we're in a win-win situation. But that joy should not be contained to ourselves. It should continue to the people around us. So as we pick it up here in verse 1, hopefully you're there already. you got Philippians open, and you can walk through or follow along in the sermon notes as we go. But Paul, Paul continues here, and he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, 
being one in spirit and of one mind. So again, Paul's reminding us here of joy. Like he's trying to help us understand joy. And I love the context here because one of the, the things that we're going to see here in chapter 2 is Paul's going to help us understand that, that his joy will be complete when we have joy or when others have joy or the church in Philippi has joy. That I'm writing to you, church of, of Philippi, because I want you to experience and have joy. But in the next verse, in verse 3, Paul's actually going to give us some warnings. He's going to give us two things that can steal us of joy or or rob joy from our lives. In fact, next week in chapter three, Mark Nelson, our online campus pastor, is gonna talk about even more because Paul lists even more warnings in chapter three. But here, Paul gives two of these joy killers in verse three. Look at what he says. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So Paul, again, he's given us kind of a warning here. Two joy killers that are out there that can rob us of joy, that will steal us of joy, right? Selfish ambition. Another way you could put it is just living to impress. Where in my life, man, it's just all about me. It's me, myself, and I, and I got to get mine. And it leads to this bulldozer mentality of like, man, I'm just, anything that's in my way, I'm steamrolling. I'm going right over it. It's all about me and promoting myself. Paul also says vain conceit. Another way you can put that is just living for the applause, right? It's this obsessive need for approval, for people to see me, to notice me, to like, to comment. You're great. You're amazing, right? I need, I want people to look at at me. And Paul's warning us here against these things. And it's interesting that Paul mentions these two joy killers because that kind of sounds a lot like our culture today, right? That's a pretty good, accurate description of what we see and experience today. And here's the interesting thing that these issues aren't just a 2021 issue. These are issues that go back 2,000 years ago to the church in Philippi. Now, they look different, right, because of social media, because of technology, but the reality is this this self-centeredness, self-focus is an issue that we all battle. And Paul's just saying, hey, look, time out, guys. Let's take a second to reflect here. Man, selfish ambition, vain conceit, living to impress, living for the applause, man, that will rob you of joy. It may bring you happiness for a moment, but man, that attitude is going to steal your joy. Recently, there was actually a study that was done looking at cultural trends that are on the rise in America. And uh, this study revealed really five trends that, that are on the rise. One of them is just a preoccupation with self. Man, we're focused on ourselves, and it's all about us, right? That's the selfie, right? The selfie photo that we see all the time on social media. You got filters that can lay over and make photos of ourselves look great, right? We are preoccupied with ourselves. Number two is just being above the rules. You may have rules for you. That's great, but don't, don't impress those rules on me, right? Like, you do you, and I'll do me, and, like, we'll, we'll keep all that stuff separate. Number three is just an inability to take criticism, like, we don't want corrective feedback. Sorry, you can't speak into my life. I, I don't want to hear any of that. I don't, I don't want your feedback. Number four is just a refusal to take responsibility. Like, that's not my fault. I'm not going to own that. Don't hold me accountable to that. I don't want to take responsibility. And then lastly is what they call unilateral listening. That's the idea that, that we listen long enough to build up enough ammunition, and then once we have enough ammo, then, man, we respond back or we attack back or there's this defensiveness that we show towards others. And ultimately, one of the conclusions is is that we are quicker to anger than ever before in America. And that's because we're so focused on ourselves. In fact, one of the conclusions, or the conclusion of this study is that we are a nation of narcissists. So there's your encouraging word for the day, right? Wow, man. 
But as a result, it's causing depression, it's causing anxiety, it's causing this like deep focus on, our, on ourselves. And uh, we end up in these places, though, because that's natural. As a result of our sin nature, man, that is our natural bent, to focus on ourselves. But God doesn't want us to live a natural life. He doesn't. And that's the reality of Philippians 2 that we're going to see here. He has something more for us than just simply living a natural life. And Paul, he gives us these warnings, and then he begins to build on that. And look at what he says in verse 5. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I would encourage you, highlight that verse. Underline that verse. Occasionally, people will say, hey, what's a good life verse? Or what's a, what would be a verse that would be good for me to memorize? That would be, that would be it. Paul's saying there's a way better example to follow than what the world has to offer. Don't follow what the world says, right? Instead of living for the applause or selfish ambition, live like Jesus. And now he goes on to describe, well, how did Jesus live? Well, he says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God um, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, Circle that word servant or highlight it. That word is like the theme of chapter two. It's one of the most important words in all of chapter two. And Paul's gonna build, he's gonna build on that. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's kind of the amazing thing about Jesus, right? Is that when he came into the world, king of kings, lord of lords, right? He came so low. Why? Because he humbled himself. He stooped so low, gave his life on the cross for us. And because of that, look at what Paul says. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Man, amen is right. There's some power and, and truth in those verses right there. What an amazing God that we have. And you think about Jesus in this life that he lived. He humbled himself. Right? We think of the king of kings, the creator of the world. If he were to step into his creation, would come in royalty, right? Would come like big. But no, he comes low. Why did he do that? He did it to be an example, to serve as an example uh, for my life and for your life. That, that's how we are to live. It's the best way to live. There's something more than just a natural life, and Jesus models that, that for us. And Paul is saying here, you want to know the key to a joy-filled life? It's develop a servant's heart. You want to live a joy-filled life? Develop a servant's heart. And that's easy to say, but man, it's, it's hard to live out. But the great news is we have an example in Jesus. He didn't just leave us alone to try to figure this thing out of what that looks like. No, we have an example. It's modeled through Jesus' life and example. That when he came into this world, he came low. You see this all throughout his ministry as well. Just Jesus' will and desire to, to do the desire of his Father. Even right up until the cross, we see him praying this prayer in the garden before going to the cross. He says, man, not what I will, but what you will, Father. I'm here to serve you. And again, Paul is saying, we got to have this same attitude. We need to have this same mindset. Actually, a couple books later, the book of Hebrews expounds on this very, very thing and even gives us insight into why Jesus endured the cross. Look at what Hebrews 12 verse 2 says. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Have you ever wondered why did Jesus endure the cross? Like, why did he do that? Well, this verse actually tells us 
It wasn't the nails that held Jesus on the cross. What held Jesus on the cross was joy. It was his choice to be there. And his expression wasn't just like, oh, all right, fine, I'll do it. Man, these people are terrible and mean, you know, just jerks. No, his expression was joy. He was willing to go to the cross because of what it would mean for me and what it would mean, what it would mean for you. And Paul's saying, look, this is our example. Jesus is our example that we need to live with a servant, with a servant's heart. This is the big idea of Philippians 2. And this is the challenge, right? And this is countercultural. And this is also maturity. Remember, Paul's writing this letter to help this young church mature in their faith. A mark of spiritual maturity is someone that has a servant's heart, someone that has a servant's attitude. So then Paul spends the rest of this chapter now trying to help us see, okay, what does that look like to have a servant's heart, right? Like that's the 30,000 foot view. But what does it look like practically to live this out? And we see this through the example uh, that, that Paul gives here in the rest of chapter two. How do we have a servant's heart? Well, first, it starts with going all in with God. We gotta get to a place in our lives where we are, we're all in. We don't hold anything back, right? That God is our source. He is the single thing. He is the only thing. He is everything that we need. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So Paul's saying, look, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, at at the church in Philippi, look, you're doing great. You're doing awesome. Keep up the good work. Continue to go all in with God. Continue to work out your salvation to keep going, which I hope to some of you is a breath of fresh air, that if you're coming in today, man, just feeling discouraged or like... I've been drifting away. I'm just not as close to God as I know that I should be. Here's the beautiful thing about what Paul is saying is that God sees you right where you're at. He knows where you're at. He knows everything about you. And all he is desiring is for you right where you're at today to go all in, to lean in, start working out your salvation, start pursuing God wherever you're at. Just start following him. In fact, that phrase, work out your salvation. If you look at that phrase in the original language in the Greek, we actually learn that it's, it's a verb, which means to work a gold mine, which is pretty cool, right? So Paul is literally saying, look, there's a whole lot that God has for me and for you, for, for us to discover in him, right? And we're to, we're to figure that out, that he's the source of all things, of joy, of peace, of love, and so many other things, and it's all right there for us. So work it out, mine it out. Don't leave any stone unturned. Right, God has so much for us, and he loves us right where we're at. He understands where we are, and he's given us some amazing things for us to discover through his Holy Spirit and through his, his word. So let's go after it. Let's work out, let's work out our, our salvation. If we're going to develop a servant's heart, we've got to start here. We've got to go all in with God. If you try to find your source somewhere else, just know it will leave you empty, dissatisfied, and dry. I think of this in my own life, of being at a point where I was just like struggling with identity and who am I and what does God have for me? And I just remember a very clear moment of really just getting that place of going all in with God. And it was actually my freshman year of college. And uh, I was in the top floor of Ridley dorm. I was on the top bunk um, in, 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 my, uh, in my dorm room. And I remember having this conversation with God. And I just, I just essentially said like, God, my life is yours. I'm going all in. I'm, I'm confused. I don't really know what you have for me, but I know if I trust in you and give you everything, you're going to lead and direct. So here's my life, my talents, my abilities, how you've wired me. God, they are yours, and I want to be used by you. And it's interesting. That was exactly 20 years ago. And as I was reflecting back on that, man, I look back, 
And I'm just overwhelmed at God's faithfulness and goodness of how he led and directed and provided opportunities um, in my life. And we have, to get to the, we have to get to this place where we're willing to go all in with God. It starts there. If we, need, if we want a servant's heart, we've got to go all in with God. But then secondly, we need to take a genuine interest in others. And this, this is where, when it comes to having a servant's heart, this is where the rubber meets the road. Like, this is where we put into action and into practice what God is doing in our lives, how he is changing us. This is what the world is in desperate need of right now. And this is why Paul encourages the Philippians to take a genuine interest in others. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. So Timothy is Paul's friend in the faith, um, his brother in the faith. I hope to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out to their own interests, right? That's verse three, right? Those are all the joy killers we talked about, but not those of Jesus Christ. So Paul here, he's highlighting something in Timothy that we're all called to do, that, that Timothy lived out or modeled um, this principle of having a genuine concern for others that he's encouraging us to have. And look, a genuine interest is different than a social media interest or a Facebook interest. Right? In fact, I've been guilty of that, where someone's asked me, like, hey, how's so-and-so doing? And I'm like, oh, man, I think they're great. I just saw on Facebook they went to the beach with the family. They're great. They're doing good, right? No issues, right? That is a terrible gauge of how someone is doing, or, or like if you're really trying to understand how someone is doing. Right? This idea of genuine interest goes way, way deeper than that. It's genuine. In fact, when you think about that word genuine, the definition of that word is to have the values claimed. That's what genuine means, to have the values claimed. So for us to take a genuine interest in people, it means that we care for people with our actions like we claim with our words. You think about that. That's a, that's a powerful statement. And that's what Paul is encouraging the Philippians to do through the example that was set by Timothy, to care for people with our actions like we say we do with our words. But how do we do that? Right? That's, that seems hard. That seems tough. And I think it's, it's helpful if we kind of narrow this down by thinking through our sphere of influence. That phrase, sphere of influence, that's, that's a phrase that we use regularly here around Northridge Church. In fact, we think about that or use that phrase a lot when, we're talk, when we talk about our outreach strategy as a church, which is pi squared, pray, invest, invite, that we should do that within our sphere of influence. But let's define that a little bit more. Let's define our sphere of influence, right? If we're called to have a genuine concern for others, we should think through who those people are. And I would encourage you to think that through by first thinking through your people, my people, Right? These are the people that are closest to me. You know, my wife, my kids, my, my family, my, some of my closest friends. Same thing for you. Think of the closest people to you in your life. These are the people you are called to take a genuine interest in first. And here's what's so interesting and ironic is that oftentimes the people that are closest to us are the people where we show the least amount of grace and love and genuine concern for, Right? Oftentimes, we show more concern and care for our own pets than we do to the person that we agree before witnesses to spend our lives with, to share a house with, right, to, to share a credit card with, to share an underwear drawer with, right? Like, you get the idea, right? Oftentimes, man, in the relationships where we should be showing it the most, we show it the least, right? And why is that? Well, it's because, it's because of selfishness. I mean, I see this in my own life. I, I'm a pastor's kid, grown up in the church my whole life, and Growing up, you know, I thought I was a pretty decent kid and selfless. And um, 
had my moments for sure, but thought I was pretty selfless. But I remember getting to college, right, and having a roommate for the very first time. And now it's no longer my room, it's our room. Like, who gets the top bunk? Who gets the bottom bunk? Who gets the desk by the window? Who doesn't? And my roommate was messy, and sometimes his stuff would spill over into my half of the closet, and I would get upset about that. And he would snore. Right? And all of a sudden, right, what's happening? Man, selfishness is welling up, and it's in, instead of genuine concern, man, it's selfishness. Right? And then later on, I get married, right? And marriage is an amazing thing, but marriage also starts to reveal some things that you never notice about yourself as well. Right now, it's no longer my apartment, it's our apartment. It's no longer what do I want to watch on TV, it's what do we want to watch on TV. Right? And then right, you go to bed, you wake up, and they're still there. Like they're, they're, they're with you all the time. Right? What is that? That's, that's selfishness. Then you throw kids into the mix. Oh, man, now you're, now you're talking about whole new levels of depravity that you're going to start to experience about yourselves because they never go anywhere and they don't sleep well at night. And, man, they don't eat well and they cost money and you got to take them places. And what is that? Man, it's selfishness that wells up within us that robs the very people God has placed in our lives from experiencing the joy and grace that we should be showing them. But instead, it's selfishness. We got we to gotta think about our people. Who are the people God has placed around you? Those are the people that we are called to show genuine concern for. But beyond that, then it's a place, my place, your place, that as a follower of Jesus, God has called you to a place. He's called you to a town, to a community, to a neighborhood, to a job, to a school. And he wants you to be a missionary there in that place for him. Sometimes we think of missionary like, man, isn't that what like I do or the church staff do or that's overseas? All that is is simply just living pie squared. It's praying, investing, and inviting to be a light for Christ wherever God has us. You know, where you go and wherever you work, that is not just a place you go to receive a paycheck. Where you go to school, that is not just a place that you go to learn. It's a place that God has. He has you there and he wants you to be a light for him and for the gospel. Right, and it starts, how do we do that? By, by servant leadership. It starts by taking a genuine interest in the people that are around us. Another way to, dis- to distill it down even further is just to simply say, look, find a need and fill it. Have your eyes open. If you see a need and you're able to meet that need in someone else, do it. Step into that. I mean, some of you might be thinking, well, man, like, well, like, well, what about me? Like, what about my needs? What about, what about my problems? And here's one of the things that I've noticed of people that have a servant's heart. One of the things I've just seen is that their problems in life get smaller. They do. They get smaller. Why is that? Because they're not focused on themselves. They are focused on other people. And right, we're coming off of a year right now with COVID that, man, has, has been tough and challenging. We're in isolation and we're thinking about implications for us and our family, which are all good things to think through. But at the end of the day, it's also, man, we, we're turning inward in ways in which we haven't before because of, of COVID. Right? And we need to get back to this place of, man, we got to learn to take a genuine interest in others. So we have a servant's heart. To have a servant's heart, we got to go all in with God. We need to take a genuine interest in others. And then number three, we got to live a life of intentional relationships. And this is so neat because Paul gives another shout out here to another guy. He did that with Timothy. Now he does it with Epaphroditus, his friend. Look at verse 25. He says, but I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. So Epaphroditus was part of the church in Philippi. And the church actually sent him to Paul to encourage him, to minister to him while he's in prison. He brought a gift along as well from the church to give to Paul. And this is what Paul says about Epaphroditus. 
which I think gives us a clue into how we can protect our servant's heart. Right? God's our source. We're going to live that out by taking genuine interest in others. But to protect that heart and to stay focused, we need to cover ourselves with intentional relationships. Right? We need brothers and sisters in Christ that are alongside of us, that are, that are protecting us, that are pushing us towards pursuing Christ, that are helping us remember to have a servant's heart. Right? We need people in our lives that, that are running this race with us. I, I know in my own life, thinking back even over this last year with COVID, when COVID hit, it kind of changed, you know, where, where my family and I, where we would work out. And we would go to, um, regularly go to a gym, but just like everything, COVID like killed that. So all the gyms shut down. So I was like, man, what am I going to do during COVID? And so I took up cycling and riding. And I had a, I had a friend named Chris who has been into cycling a lot longer than, than I uh, have been. And here I was getting into it. He's like, oh, sweet, let's ride together. So we would ride one day a week together. And I'll never forget the first time we rode together. Um, I quickly realized that we weren't just riding bikes, <laughs> that this was a chance for us to invest in one another because Chris, Chris was asking me like, hey, how are you doing? How's M doing? How are the kids? How's work? How's ministry? Right? And he's asking me these questions. I'm just thinking like, bro, if you ask me another question, I'm going to swerve off into a ditch because I can't breathe, right? My legs are on fire. My lungs are on fire. You're asking me these important questions. But why was he doing that? Because to Chris, it was like, we're not just riding bike. We're investing in one another. I want to know how you are doing. We need people like that in our lives that can invest in us, that can help pursue us and push us towards Christ. Do you have people like that in your life that are helping you pursue Christ? This is why we talk about groups all the time here at Northridge Church. In fact, maybe sometimes you wonder, like, man, they talk about groups a lot at Northridge Church. Well, the reason for that is exactly what Paul is trying to encourage us and what we see modeled throughout the New Testament, that, man, Life, do, don't do life alone. We need people, right? Circles are better than rows. If you want to grow spiritually, you need to be connected relationally. That's why we do groups and offer that to people. That's why we've been, um, um, been pushing summer groups. You've been hearing us talk about that. If you don't have a group or have never tried one out, it is the easiest opportunity to jump into a group, connect with people that are in the same stage, meaning it's a new group. You're not jumping into an existing group, so there's no existing relationships. You're all coming in together, and it's a chance to grow, to build friendships with one another that can help you to help you grow. Don't do life alone. But it's interesting. Look at what else Paul says about Epaphroditus. He says it's, that he's his coworker, and that Epaphroditus is his fellow soldier. So if we want to develop a servant's heart, another way to do that is through serving Christ with other brothers and sisters for Christ. That we should be serving. In fact, if Northridge Church is your home and you're not connected or serving in some way, I would push you and I would challenge you to get in the game in some way, shape, or form. We have volunteer needs across all three of our campuses. There are serving needs for our online campus. We have serving needs for our in-person campuses in Webster and in Rochester that I would encourage you to explore, um, to check out. And look, I, I, don't, I don't say this because I'm the pastor and I'm paid to do this. I didn't even come up with the idea. This was God's design. He, he started and created the church. In fact, Paul even talks about in 1 Corinthians that the church is a body, and a body is made up of, of many members, and the members are people, and we all have a role to play in that. And the church is at its best and most healthiest state when everyone is contributing and playing their part in some way, shape, or form. Look, and I know we're all busy. Man, I get it. Kids' schedules or your schedule or friends or work or vacation is tough. But man, we can make time. In fact, if you look at Epaphroditus, two verses later in verse 27, Epaphroditus almost gives his life because he was serving the church and serving Paul. 
we can make time to serve. If you're interested in any of that, just go to iwant.info. Whether it's serving or whether it's groups or summer groups, you can go there. We got to remember, life isn't about us. It's about serving one another. And look, as we close, I really want to finish with with a promise. I skipped over some verses in the middle of chapter 2 that I'd like us to end with here. Because at the end of the day, this is a tough message. Like, this is hard. Like, humility, putting others first, being a servant leader, having a servant's heart, that's hard. But there's an incredible promise that's found here in the middle of chapter 2, verse 14. Look at what Paul says. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Paul's saying, look, that when you live with a servant's heart, when you live that way and demonstrate that and allow that joy to overflow out of you into other people, you are going to shine like a star in a dark night in a crooked and messed up generation. And here's the promise. The promise is that when we humble ourselves, God exalts us. It's this crazy promise. I don't even fully understand how God does it, but he does it. And we've seen that time and time again in people's lives and examples throughout um, the Bible. The way up is down. When we humble ourselves and live a life of humility, God will work in and through us in ways we never thought possible. That he has incredible things in store for us. But remember, the exact opposite is true as well. That if you live for the things in verse 3, vain conceit, selfish ambition, right, that's what defines a crooked, right, and warped generation. And if you live that way, you will not experience the joy and the purpose that God has for us in our lives. God has something so much better and greater that he wants to accomplish in and through us. And it takes people that will say, look, God, my life is yours. Work in and through me. Everything I have, it's yours. I'm all in and I want to work you to work through me, that I'm seeing needs and meeting needs, and that joy that I have is overflowing into the people around me. And then we get to these points in life where we look back and we're like, man, that could have only happened because of God, because of his faithfulness and goodness to where he gets the praise and the glory. And at the end of the day, is for our ultimate good. Here in Philippians 2, Paul wants us to understand what a joy-filled life looks like. And you want to know what a joy-filled life looks like? It looks a whole lot like Jesus. He's our example. We're called to follow in his example. And when we do that, we are positioning ourselves to where we experience the greatest joy of all, following him. And at the end of the day, that's spilling out in our lives through servant leadership to the people around us. And that's our hope and prayer for Northridge Church, that we would be a church that is full of servant leaders, that demonstrate a servant's heart, where life's not about us, but we're stepping out and we're trying to see needs and meet needs wherever we can, not for our own credit or glory, but for God's glory and for our good. So let's, let's do that, man. Let's pursue that this week and the weeks ahead. Let me pray. God, I thank you for the example of Paul. I thank you for the book of Philippians. And uh, I just thank you for the reminder and the challenge today. God, that there is so, you have so much for us. It's like a gold mine that we can never get to the end of discovering all that you want to do in and through our lives. And I pray, God, that we would, we would go all in with you. And as a result of what we learn, that would result in us taking a genuine interest in others, building into people, having intentional relationships to where this joy that we have from knowing you cannot be contained. But we can't help but talk about you and point people to you in your goodness and grace. Help us to be a church that has the same mindset of that of Christ Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen.